Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Henderson MB Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information on our church, visit hendersonmbchurch.com. So we're in a sermon series called We Are Acts 29. Uh, The book of Acts has 28 chapters, and so we are really living out the 29th chapter and wanted to, uh, for this sermon series, work through the book of Acts. I mean, it's the the days of the early church, and as we go through a rebranding, renaming process to just once again look at um, what are kind of the the core uh, parts of of being a church and what was the church founded on. Today we're in Acts um, 8, looking at uh, the story of Philip once again. And uh, just a, a little bit of kind of uh, review. Um, so a little while ago in Acts, we saw where uh, they were doing food distribution to the widows. But a couple people said, hey, the, the, food, the food distribution isn't happening fairly. There, there's a group that's getting left out. And the apostles said, okay, that, that's good. But if we invest in that, I mean, it's a little bit distraction of some of what we could be doing. So let's, you know, let's... Uh, choose seven kind of holy righteous men from among you and let's put them in charge of that and we'll keep doing the things that that we're good at and and so uh, and we'll have them do it and that sounded like a great plan seven men are chosen they're listed the first two that are listed um, are uh, are Philip is one of them but then also Stephen Stephen's the first one that get mentioned so then we see some of uh, what happened in the life of Stephen and now we're on Philip and we see some of what happens in in the life of Philip and, um, Josh, you can go ahead and put up the—go to the next slide. Um, I don't know if that's even really readable from the background, but it was one of those situations where when I looked at the map, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. I'll read the story to you here in, in just a minute, but um, the bottom of the orange squiggly line, if you can't read it, is Jerusalem. Uh, up on top of the orange squiggly line is Samaria. Um, and then over on the left, on the very bottom left-hand corner, is Gaza— and then we've got the red dotted line up to, to Ashdod and then Caesarea up on the top. Um, just kind of, because when I read through this story, at one point, as you know, the angel tells Philip, hey, head over to this region. And I thought, you know, that'd just like be on the edge of town. But actually, depending on where he was at, like it took him a week to get there. Um, it could have been anywhere from like 20 miles to like 80 to 100 miles. So it wasn't like he was just like, sure, I got a half hour free time. I can duck over there and see what's going on. It was more like I'm going to take a week's journey to, to get to this location. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to review th- through this. But then we're going to talk through the, uh, the vision statement. It was, it was surprising to me, and it should not have been surprising to me, but it was surprising to me how literally almost every aspect of our vision statement is in today's story. And then I was like, yeah, but that shouldn't surprise me because our vision statement isn't new. Like, it's actually really old. It's like 2,000 years old. We just tweaked the wording and slapped a graphic on it. Okay? Because, I mean, our, our vision statement is rooted in the Great Commission and Great Commandment. And so to be able to find aspects of the vision statement in a random story from Philip, like... Why wouldn't it be there? So, anyways, uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. Let me first just read the story to you, and, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, so, I, if you want to follow along, I'm in Acts. I'm in chapter 8 uh, and uh, verse 26, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. You can see that on the map. And even just, okay, I guess I should clarify. Uh, Philip started off in Jerusalem, then he went up into Samaria and did a bunch of ministry there. And then the verse, set, verse before says, they returned to, to Jerusalem. We don't know if that includes Philip or just Peter and John. So Philip may have been Jerusalem. He may have been all the way up in Samaria. Either way, it's a pretty good hike down to the bottom left-hand corner. So the angel of the Lord says, uh, go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up, sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, um, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. A few things on this. So the country Ethiopia that gets referenced in here, that's not going to be the Ethiopia that, that you and I would know. That, that's a different country. Um, this Ethiopia, uh, ancient country of Moreau, uh, it's located on the Nile River. Old Testament would have called it the, the Kingdom of Cush. Um, comparatively pretty advanced civilization going on down there. The Greeks and Romans considered this like the most extreme edge of civilization. I mean, you get beyond Ethiopia slash Moreau slash Cush. I mean, just the world just falls off. There's nothing left after that. And so that, that was their view of that. Uh, it's interesting. They viewed their kings as an incarnation of the sun god. And, and so the, the kings had primarily a ceremonial role. So all the administration was actually done by the queen mothers. Queen mothers ruled the place. Uh, clever way to, to hang on to power there, Queen Mothers. Um, and her ceremonial title was the Candace, which is what we see in here. So this Ethiopian, uh, he would be like the accountant or the finance minister for the queen. Like the, like the number one person in the entire kingdom. He is in charge of all her finances. So it's kind of hard to underestimate just how important this guy was, uh, just how, like, 
Today, he'd be like in an armored SUV with like secret service everywhere. Okay, like that's who, who this guy was. Um, somehow, he becomes a believer in, in Judaism. We have no idea how that happened. Um, but he has the same beliefs about God and scripture as the Jew. He himself is not a Jew. He has traveled all the way up to Jerusalem. I, uh, I'm going off memory here. I think maybe 200 miles so that he can go to Jerusalem and worship at the temple. The ironic part, though, is because of his physical condition, he wasn't even allowed in the temple. He, he, was just, he would have had to be on the outside looking in, but he came up for this, this pilgrimage, the, this worship experience. So obviously the guy's very devout. Um, it, it's interesting, though, when you think about his life, just kind of as a side note, you know, when this guy said yes to Jesus, it completely changed his worship experience. Because we, we know just from his physical condition and how things worked at the temple that he was not allowed access in, that he would have been an outsider looking in, like peeking over the gate, so to speak. But when he said yes to Jesus, now he has full access to God. He's no longer the outside looking in. He's now able to approach God with freedom, with joy, with concerns, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so it's, it's pretty remarkable just when you, when you think about that. Uh, the angel tells Philip to run up to this chariot uh, the chariot was probably like slow moving. Uh, he's reading out loud. That was a thing they did back then. Uh, Philip engages him in, in conversation. Another remarkable thing is also just that the guy had his own manuscript, right? Like, I mean, thanks to Gutenberg and, and Amazon servers that just download your stuff to Kindles, like we take books for granted. But back then, some guy had to copy it by hand. So books were rare and super expensive, I mean, now, like, you literally just download something on your phone in the middle of the sermon if you wanted. You shouldn't. That would be distracting. But you could, right? But back then, that's not the case. Um, He's reading Isaiah 53. That's where that quote is taken out of. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus. It alludes to his birth, his life, his ministry, his substitutionary death, his victory over death. I mean, it's just like the perfect setup. And Philip's able to step in and be like, yeah, sure, let's look at that verse. And then he just begins to unpack everything in Scripture about who is Jesus and and tell him about the story of Jesus. Uh, They find water, he's baptized, uh, and then Philip is suddenly and miraculously transported um, about 20 miles north. I don't know why that happened that way, but it did. It makes for a pretty cool story. But then Philip just evangelizes his way north up to Caesarea about 60 miles over the next however long it takes you to evangelize your way north covering 60 miles and literally we don't hear anything about Philip again until I think it's Acts 20 which they estimate to be like 20 years later and it talks about Philip the evangelist and he's got four daughters uh, who prophesy that's the next time we see him so um, pretty pretty remarkable um The gospel comes to this man of incredibly high power. He's deformed. He's forbidden from entering the the temple. From North Africa along the Nile, the most extreme edge of known civilization. For a Jerusalem native, when this story happened, the gospel has now gone to the utter ends of the earth. Uh, we don't know what happened after this. Um, some legends hold that he went back and become a great missionary. That, that's very true. 
We do know, though, that by the 5th century that that country had a pretty thriving Christian community. His role in that, we, we don't know. But it, it is so remarkable, I think, how God took Philip, who had an amazing ministry going on in Samaria, and then says, you know what? Actually, I need you like 100 miles to the southwest because there's one guy that you need to have a conversation with. But that one conversation is literally going to take the gospel into this uncharted territory, at least for them. And one of the most influential men um, in, that, in that entire region. Philip has a remarkable ministry throughout his life. Uh, you know, somehow he establishes himself as having a good reputation, full of wisdom, full of the spirit. From that, he gets a job working in the kitchen handing out food uh, to, to the widows. From that, then, he has this ministry in Samaria. He saw miracles. Uh, it's just remarkable. Then he has the honor of sharing with this Ethiopian, sending the gospel into new territory. Uh, and then 20 years later, he's still known as an evangelist. In my mind, the great evangelists are not so... Th- their primary drive is not actually a passion for the lost, It's actually a drive for the glory of God. I think all of the best evangelists are actually driven by a passion for the glory of God. But then what happens is that expresses itself through evangelism. Now, for other people, it expresses itself differently. I mean, kind of depending on gifting and skill set and life experience. But that driving force is the glory of God. I I would offer to you that, that the core of our mission statement is actually glory of God. Uh, the picture for that, um, you can pull up that one. Um, so we've got the lantern. At the center of the lantern is a flame, uh, which produces light, but then at the core of that flame is a heart. At the core of us glorifying God is love. Love for God, loving God as a result is light. A light on a hill that cannot be hidden. A light for all to see. A light that shines in the darkness. You know, glorify God is actually, out of all the ones that are up here, I keep going like this, I'm pointing at the banners. Um, Of all the ones that are up here, that's the only one that lasts forever. All the other three end when we die or when Jesus comes back. But that one, that one's eternal. I mean, we're we're just, this is just kind of dress rehearsal for the real thing. All right? When it comes to glorifying God. Lots of ways to glorify God. We, we've articulated some of them. I mean, what, the other three are ways that, that we glorify God. Uh, but obedience, worship, good financial stewardship, doing community well. You know, in the Old Testament, God basically gave Israel two commands. He said, um, I want you to listen and I want you to obey. And as you track the course of history uh, of Israel and how they just eventually kind of go off stray... Basically, they stopped listening, and then they stopped obeying. And, I mean, those are kind of two key words that that you see throughout. Just that core command of, I want you to listen, and I want you to obey. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience. Um, Worship. when When we think of worship, we tend to think of musical worship, and that is true. But you have to remember that worship is bigger than that. I mean, worship actually encompasses all of life. Not just a musical preference. I mean, music is a big part of it. And, and also, worship is not, it's not the style of worship, but really, worship speaks to a heart position. Right? 
musical worship, musical style, like that comes and goes, that's flexible, that, that's fine, you know, whatever. But really at the core of it is, is a positioning of the heart. The other thing to remember is that worship is not for us. I mean, there are times where it revives our soul and that's awesome. But worship is not for us. It is a gift of gratitude that we give to God. And because of that, you, you actually, like it totally changed, like you don't have to be in the mood <laughs> to worship well because it's a gift you're giving the Lord. You know, when I worked with Trek teams, we'd send teams all over the world and, you know, I mean, they, they would land in some country, they would not know the language, and we would say, you show up and you try to sing the songs and you worship. I don't care if you know the language or not. You show up and you worship. And you can say that thing because worship is, first and foremost, a heart position. Sometimes worship is just this free-flowing, positive emotion, and that's great. But sometimes we simply choose to worship. And that's how we can worship even in the hard times. I mean, Paul and Silas are singing songs in prison. They probably weren't in a good mood. (laughs) But they chose to worship. Uh, finances, that's another one. Uh, just to, to steward our finances well, tithes, offerings. Uh, community, one of the great ways we glorify God is in community. Uh, you know, God gave seven feasts in the Old Testament, and most of them, I forget the exact number, it's well over half, they involve food and fellowship and eating together. And so we can crack jokes about crock pots and potlucks and whatnot, man, that's an act of righteousness right there, okay? Um, That is totally holy. When we go down and have a good food together, like once again, that's just practicing for heaven because there's this great verse that talks about the wedding feast of the lamb, and so I know we get to eat in heaven, and there are debates on whether or not it's vegetarian or not. I hold that it's not, but whatever. Community. Another aspect on community is that you cannot learn to appreciate relationship with Jesus without also learning to appreciate relationship with one another. Your love for the Lord and your love of people are connected. And they cannot grow independently. They can only grow in partnership with each other. So if you are not growing in your love of people, you're actually not growing in your love of the Lord. And if you're not growing in your love of the Lord, you're actually not growing in your love of people. They have to happen together. Uh, Second one, grow disciples. Um, From the desire to to glorify God, the first thing uh, uh, to see happen is uh, growing disciples. That's both a personal reflection, but also helping others to grow. In the picture, we've got the tree. The cross is at the center. There's the full tree, the roots, the the trunk, uh, the leaves. And so we're just reminded of kind of the whole thing. It's organic. It's agricultural. Um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does is prosper. So the tree, great analogy. Uh, You know, in, in the growing process, Philip's skill and expertise was evangelism. Was, was the planting. 
Other people, it's going to be the nurturing and the growing and that kind of thing, and, and that's fantastic. All of us have a skill or a gifting to contribute in some ways. His was evangelism. Our strategy on this one is large group, small group, no group. Large group is what we do here. Uh, we, we gather. There, there's worship. There's our musical worship. I teach you some scripture. We sing. There's tithes and offerings. Uh, we pray before and after. We, we chat a bit. Maybe we do a little bit of business. Um, this, this is large group. Small group, that's going to be like your, your Sunday school, your group of four to ten people, small midweek thing, that kind of thing. Um, there are things that happen in a small group that can only happen in a small group. There are things that can happen in a large group that can only happen in a large. But, you know, I, in, in the large group, I mean, let's just be honest, I primarily talk at you. And you primarily sit there sort of attentive and mostly awake. Thank you. But in a small group, you can sit across from one another and say, hey, how was your week? Hey, how's your mom? Hey, how's that job search going? Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, last time you had expressed a desire to, to work on this, how's that going? That can really only happen in a small group. That, that can't happen anywhere else. No group, that's just you and your Bible for 15, 30, 45 minutes a day, reading scripture, some prayer. Studies have shown that you, you have to ingest, read, uh, listen to scripture at least four times a week to actually see change. When they did the study, they found that people who only engage with scripture two to three times a week didn't actually live out a life change. It was only when they engaged in scripture four times or more per week that they actually lived a life that was different from the, the, uh, an unbeliever's life. So you've got to get scripture in your head at least four times a week. Um, I, I mean, read it, listen to it on, on podcasts, but just, but just scripture, right? We're not listening to devotional, we're not listening to worship music, we're not listening to some other pastor, just scripture, pure, unfiltered scripture. And for each of these, like they, eat the, the large group, small group, no group, each one of us, one of them does something that the other one can't. And so you need to be engaged in, in all three, kind of a balanced diet. Uh, next picture, uh, multiply churches. So for this, uh, we've got a, a church building uh, that re represents the people kind of in an organized fashion. And the water represents the Holy Spirit. The church grows. It's refined by the Holy Spirit. There is no church growth without the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, no healthy church without the Holy Spirit. I, I was thinking about it, and, you know, at first you would think that more disciples would drive the need for more churches. That simply as you grow a bunch of disciples, that ev eventually you would need more churches. And that's true, but it's not entirely true because actually... The research has shown that it's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. They, they have shown that when good churches are planted, it's one of the best, most effective forms of evangelism. And so what that means is that you, you can't wait until you hit some ideal number to plant a church. You have to start on the front end to say, we're going to plant a church. Eventually, because the two feed each other. Growing disciples demands more churches, but planting churches results in, in more disciples, more Christ followers, more people coming and, and knowing the Lord. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a two-way street. 
The other thing on churches is just that you cannot, you cannot become a good Christian on your own. You have to be engaged in, in community for that. Uh, only community can, can help you out. When we skip out on church, we hurt ourselves. And honestly, if we have kids, what we're telling our kids is that, you know, spiritual growth really isn't that important. Because you cannot become a good Christian on your own. When it comes to multiplying churches, we have a dream or a vision that is regional, national, and global. So regional, we want to be a church that, that makes Jesus known in, in small-town Nebraska and rural Nebraska. Um, a lot of church planning efforts are targeting the big cities, and for a lot of good reasons. That, that's great. But one of the byproducts, though, is that your smaller communities aren't getting targeted as much. And all, what that means, though, basically, is that small-town Nebraska is our responsibility. We, we can't sit around and wait for another agency or wait for Multiplier or wait for someone else to come in and plant a bunch of churches in small-town Nebraska. That's on us. And honestly, I, you know, planning a church might be beyond us, but I bet if we partner with two or three or four other churches, I bet we could pull it off. Requires some strategy, but I bet it could be done. No one will understand small-town Nebraska better than we do. These are our people. This is our responsibility. Uh, so we need to, to step into that. When this church was formed 140 years ago, the vision was not for a church in Nebraska. The vision was for people all across the Midwest to say yes to Jesus. I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, they, they, they set up satellite churches from year one. The vision was never for a church in Henderson. It was always for multiple churches all across the Midwest. Nationally, we support Greenhouse, the church plant in Utah. Uh, several of you have, have gone VBS teams to Utah. I try to do some vision trips out there, taking pastors, business leaders, influencers. They need us. We need them. Uh, church planners just have a risk-taking, outside-the-box, evangelistic, pleading prayer life that we could really learn from. Uh, it's just fantastic. Retirees, those of you with motorhomes, mentioned this last year and you're all still here but i would love for some of you to just hop in your motorhome and drive out there and be like i'm here for the summer put me to work or go in winter because then you can get in on ski season like i don't care but that would just be amazing like how great for green i mean give them some warning that you're coming and be prepared to scrub toilets and babysit but seriously that'd be awesome we would grieve you leaving but we trust you're coming back Globally, we support Kenton and Kedron Miller in Austria, Paul and Sarah Rogast uh, in Paris. Uh, we want to just, that's kind of how we're engaged around the world. Uh, would love to send a vis another vision trip to the Millers. Would love to send a, I mean, the VBS team went to Utah. That's great. It needs to go to Austria here pretty soon, people. Like, we can't be dragging our feet on that. Fourth, transform communities. For this, the uh, picture uh, you know, there's the, a community, it's held in hands, it's encircled with a heart, it, it's encircled with love. You know, at first I was looking at Philip's life and I was like, yeah, I'm not sure that he really got to see transforming communities. I mean, a lot of his stuff was evangelism pretty early on, not really sure we see that. Uh, but then I thought, oh, no, we actually do. When Philip is in Samaria, uh, this is what it reads. So he goes to Samaria, they're proclaiming Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits uh, were coming out of many 
and many who were paralyzed or lamed were being healed, so there was much joy in that city. I'm going to call that transformed community. When you have a bunch of people freed from unclean spirits, and when you have a bunch of lame people walking around, and when there's joy in the entire community, and with, with one accord they're responding to the gospel, I, that's pretty good transformed community right there. When it comes to the community we live in, we love them. Uh, only God can really hold an entire community in his hands, but we do our part. Uh, for us, this is things like uh, Saturday, uh, when, uh, Wednesday Night Live, uh, projects like Love Henderson or other service projects, uh, culture of servanthood, evangelism that happens personally, corporately, strategic prayer and, and outreach events. The community should be blessed by our presence. They should be grateful for our presence. Uh, and it should be changed. It should be a better place because of our, our presence. It amazes me that, that God can arrange it so that we hit a very brief story on Philip, and yet we find really pieces of our entire vision statement in that one short story or, or in the life of Philip. And yet at the same time, it shouldn't be surprising because, as we said, this isn't a new vision. This is a 2,000-year-old vision. We just tweak the wording and slap some graphics on there. But it, it, it's nothing new. I mean, all this, we had more time, and if lunch wasn't w- waiting, I mean, all of this is tied back and connected with the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. I mean, that's really where it all flows out of. Um, someday, maybe we will find a way to word this better. Um, that's totally fine, but for now... This works, and so this is what we're sticking with, and, and this is what, what we're going with. I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll have the, the closing song, and then um, I don't know if there's any specific instructions other than just head on down, and uh, we'll do a, a prayer for the meal down there and uh, enjoy some time together, which is biblical, and then have a good meeting. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that, that you arrange things and how we can find just traces of the great commission to preach the gospel to all the nations and to make disciples of all nations and the great commandment to to love you with all our heart and and to love others as as we love ourselves uh in this story of philip thank you for the story of of philip and his life and how it serves as both inspiration and instruction to us here today in henderson and lord we we just want to say once again that that we embrace Um, this call on this church wholeheartedly. Um, And that someday, Lord, that that we want to appear before you and hear the simple words, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you and we worship you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at hendersonmbchurch.com or email me directly at luke at hendersonmbchurch.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.